Long before narrative and storytelling became buzzwords in the technology space, Megan Cunningham was pioneering the art of brand storytelling through her content studio, Magnet Media. But it wasn't easy creating an entirely new media and marketing model and building a global business. Cunningham learned the cost of burning the candle on both ends on a business trip one day. And the first meeting, I honestly cannot tell you anything that was said during that meeting because I was just like sitting there staring off into space and in such agonizing pain. Um, and by the end of the, the meeting, I just had to like excuse myself and went to the hotel room and just called 911 because I was like, just like doubled over in pain. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Her health crisis convinced Megan Cunningham to acknowledge that scaling a company meant operating at a whole different level, both personally and professionally. Here to talk about it is Megan Cunningham, CEO of the brand studio Magnet Media. Cunningham is a sought-after speaker on media and marketing trends, especially how data informs the storytelling process to drive measurable impact. She's also the author of the book, The Art of the Documentary. And Cunningham has spoken at many events, including the Sundance Film Festival, the Wharton School of Business, South by Southwest, and the Consumer Electronics Show. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you want to be doing what you're doing now? When I was younger, I was really fortunate to be immersed in a house that just loved to tell stories. Um, we have a really close family and uh, everyone's really a pretty obsessive reader, um, but we also love to exchange stories. Um, and we just, that was a big part of my my life growing up. And so when it came to decide, you know, what I wanted to be, of course, I naturally gravitated towards writing. Um, however, after researching all the schools that I could potentially go to and looking into the writing programs and visiting campuses, um, you know, I chose Swarthmore. And uh, yet when I signed up for um, my first year of courses, the very first class I took was called Women in Documentary. Um, and ironically, it was from a visiting professor um, who was there from NYU and had a film background. Um, and so I quickly sort of pivoted paths uh, as an 18-year-old and decided that visual storytelling was really um, so much more compelling. And, and that's what I was drawn to. What drew you so much towards uh, video and film, and and what were what were the things in that class that shaped the work you subsequently do did? Yeah, so I grew up in a really small town, and um, like many of us in the in the states, um, you know, it was really isolated um, and sheltered. And so I think you know the exposure that I gained from this course that was showing so many independent films from throughout history um, was really eye-opening and transformative in so many ways. Um, it, you know, we watched work from different decades and from overseas. Um, and it was just, you know, at that time, there wasn't a huge amount of opportunity. Um, you know, cable television was really just on the rise. And so there was, wasn't a diversity of storytellers um, and so that exposure to new 
people's experiences and sort of ways of looking at the world um, was very moving to me. And I thought, you know, this is how we could create um, a more empathetic world if we understood each other and where everyone was coming from. Um, so that I felt, you know, sort of politically aligned to as well as um, artistically drawn to. And there were a lot of conversations that were going on at the time that were, uh, you know, sort of the social activism that was starting, right, with like Black Lives Matter and things like that. Yeah, this is definitely before all of that um, was formalized. And this was, you know, probably like the second wave of feminism um, in the 90s. And, you know, at that point, I think there was, um, you know, we just come out of a, a sort of Reagan Bush era of, you know, a lot of divisiveness, um, not unlike uh, the era we're currently in, um, but where people, you know, weren't really able to listen to each other ever or interested in listening to each other. Um, and so there was this, you know, um, what I saw in the power of storytelling was an ability to understand someone else's experience in a way that you couldn't um, simply through reading about it or from conversation. So what did you do next? So I was fortunate enough to have my name pulled from a hat um, <laughs> and was uh, in, in that class. Um, a subset of us were actually selected because there was a, an abundance of interest. Um, and so uh, a subset were selected to work on a uh, grassroots um, documentary with our professor. Um, and fast forward the clock, it ended up winning a student Emmy Award. And so, um, you know, a year later, we find ourselves in like this fancy LA studio sitting next to the, you know, MTV executives. And, um, you know, it was really this crazy um, amount of opportunity that came at all of us very early on. Um, and thinking, you know, oh, I'm 20 years old, I've made it, you know. <laughs> so um, that part of it was uh, obviously very deceiving uh, that like, this is how things work. Like you just, you know, you get lucky and then you work really hard and you stay up in the morning editing this video and suddenly, um, you know, your, your career is set for you. But um, I think, you know, I did have that good fortune early on and um, it was also, you know, through a lot of um, collaboration and, and sort of ironing out, um, you know, the sort of creative details um, that we all sort of felt were, uh, you know, important to the project. Um, and it happened to be about AIDS activism at the time. And so you then ended up at, uh, what was your first real career opener? Was it uh, PBS? Yeah, so I worked in um, public television and um, at WNET and uh, as well as um, HBO um, and a number of independent films that were, you know, made for both those channels where the companies would have, you know, sort of working space um, at the networks because um, they had these long um, sort of output deals. Um, and, you know, initially I was like in my glory. It was so... Uh, uh, humbling to be around, you know, the filmmakers and editors and producers whose work I had watched, um, you know, again, obsessively for the past four years, um, and to get to see how they, you know, woke up at four in the morning to, you know, get the crew ready to be on set and, you know, have every little detail in, um, 
you know, ironing the carpet that was like in the way, way background of the shot um, so that you know, everything could just be perfect um, in the image. Um, that level of uh, discipline and craftsmanship, I think, um, was awe-inspiring and still, um, you know, I take that, those lessons with me to this day. Um, however, the downside was that the pace I found um, to be agonizing. I mean, it would take three to five years to go from a concept to research to a place where grants were, you know, submitted or um, you were pitching investors or um, networks that would commission, you know, sort of episodes of, of different uh, ongoing programs like America Undercover or American Experience. Um, and so that process, I just found like, wow, it's going to take like my entire lifetime to make like, you know, three or four films. And I just wanted to move faster. I was much more um, uh, impatient, I guess, than a lot of the other colleagues I worked with. And so um, one of my mentors at the time, Larry Silk, who was, you know, just a legend in documentary editing, took me out to lunch and said, you know, Megan, you are really creative really hard working and I, you know, was like feeling, sitting straight up in my seat and thinking, oh, finally, somebody's noticing. Um, and, <laughs> and he said, however, everyone else here is also very hard working and very creative. Um, so he's like, the thing that makes you stand out is you're good at computers. And I thought, <laughs> because I thought, you know, he's going to tell me that I had like this really unique, you know, sort of, um, you know, narrative style or something in my, you know, editing approach and said it was this, you know, sort of uh, vocational technical skill that he saw that was a real differentiator for me. Um, but at the time, you know, I went home and I was, you know, bummed out and I thought about it, I thought about it and I said, and I had two conclusions from that conversation. And one was, if I'm the most technical person, having graduated from a liberal arts college and grown up in a house where my mother was an English teacher, um, we're all in trouble in the media industry. <laughs> <laughs> and the second was, um, you know, I really should lean into this. Um, this is someone who I admire and who, you know, has mentored a lot of impressive people. And I'm wondering what I can do with the technology side that can be um, a source of passion for me as much as the storytelling and creative side was. And so with that, I was uh, scanning the classifieds, which were a thing at the time. Um, and I found a role that said ground floor opportunity um, to join a startup as employee number two. And again, this is, you know, in the late nineties and not a lot of people were part of startups, um, certainly not in the East coast. And so uh, a lot of my friends at the time thought, do you have a real job? Like, there's not a lot of people on that floor that you work on, you know, <laughs> you're money or something like what's happening. Um, and it turned out that it was a massive opportunity for me um, to build this company. I was at the right hand of a serial entrepreneur um, and hired 40 people over three years and we bootstrapped it and became this $20 million company. And um, so I really learned a tremendous amount, not just about the technology, but also about sort of building a company. And so what were your plans afterwards? At that point, I had, you know, been working, you know, two, three, four years on this really uh, ridiculous schedule, like most startups. Um, and, you know, I was putting in, you know, seven days a week and 60 hours. And it was just so exhausting. And I thought, I don't think there's 
a light at the end of the tunnel if I stay here. Um, and so I really wanted to return to the creative storytelling part as well. Like part of my goal in taking that job was to get much more confident on the technology side. And, you know, by the end of that, uh, period, we had built studios for Woody Allen and Oprah and MTV. And so it was all about this digital transformation. So I felt very, very confident that I knew um, what I was talking about when it came to the technical side. However, um, I really had a yearning to be both, you know, sort of maintain that technology edge, but really have um, a creative component to my work. Um, and so at the time, I, you know, was telling the, the founder, I'm, you know, going to leave. And I, you know, was thinking about it, you know, six months from now, I'm going to, I'm you know, going to sort of uh, exit the company. And, um, you know, he was supportive of that. He knew how hard I had worked, but he said, um, you're not going to go work for some filmmaker, are you? And, you know, he was a very persuasive person. And at the time, like that had been in my head. I was like, wow, I made all these great connections. I could go, you know, put together some, you know, uh, independent projects. But it sounded so small when he described it that I thought, no, I can't go work for some filmmaker. And so he really urged me um, to roll up my sleeves and start Magnet Media um, at the ripe old age of 27. That's amazing. Um, you know, as we know with startups, it's not just the idea, but the timing of that idea that can make or break you. If you're too early or if you're too late, you you just can't succeed in the market, right? The market timing is exquisite and, and uh, unforgiving. Uh, did that in, in any way impact your business, given that you were starting it you know, at, at, a, at a very early stage of the age of the internet. Yeah. I mean, I think that the reality is I'm really an accidental entrepreneur in many ways. It, it wasn't my life's dream to run a company. Um, however, I did have a very strong vision for the way in that the world could be, um, which was, you know, still to this day, our mission is telling stories that matter so that we have a more empathetic, inclusive world. Um, and, you know, we do that through, um, you know, branded content. But I, I will say that um, that vision wasn't something that any other company um, was doing. They was, you know, I was sort of had this, you know, grand uh, view of creating almost an alternative media industry with fewer gatekeepers that was more open and diverse, um, and that you know was supportive of, you know, it was a for-profit organization, but it was supportive of um, a broader set of stories um, that couldn't have been told through the traditional channels. Um, and so we were a pioneer in a lot of different. Uh, facets of the industry. We're a pioneer web video. We were a pioneer branded content. Um, social and streaming distribution were things that we were talking about, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, we were fortunate enough to have Apple as our first client. Um, so that, you know, set us up for success and sort of gave us uh, some gas in the tank and some um, assurance that we weren't completely delusional. But at the time, you make a really good point here because I think that no one can predict what the horizon of your success is going to be. And when a trend is on target, um, how long it will take for that trend to truly be monetizable. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's the biggest unknown and the biggest risk factor in so many startups is, you know, we needed all these underlying market conditions in order for the company to be successful. So we needed uh, there to be, you know, social networks that we needed broadband to be ubiquitous. We needed mobile to be, you know, um, a means of capturing and exchanging content um, in order to really reach scale. Those facts 
had to all um, come to fruition. And in the early 2000s, those were a pipe dream, right? YouTube um, wasn't around until 2005. And, you know, mobile phones and social networks, you know, came after that. So I think that um, those evolutions were things that, you know, I knew from understanding the technology and the direction that things were headed, that those were inevitabilities. But what I didn't and wasn't able to predict um, was the timing. And also YouTube at the time, I guess, even when it happened in the early days, certainly wasn't kind of this marketing engine that it was. And I think you came in that early period and were able to capitalize on it when it did become a marketing engine. Yes. No, thank you for saying that. And it wasn't, um, uh, I'd love to say that, yes, I saw YouTube and I said, ah, this is the turning point for Magnet Media. But, you know, in retrospect, it really was. But um, at the time, it, it took, you know, someone uh, at Google who was well-connected and had an ear to the ground um, and knew of a little company called Magnet Media that was like, you know, six or seven people at the time um, in Manhattan. And they called me up and they said, you know, we hear that you can tell brands that were more than cat videos. And I remember, you know, sort of being on YouTube at the time as, as I had, you know, sort of the phone to my ear and saying, you know, the homepage is all cats right now. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure that's true, but I can help you make it more than cat videos. Um, and so, you know, we put our heads together and did some really exciting projects in the early days um, to showcase to the leading creative directors who were really invested in television spots um, that, you know, the web was not just user-generated um, low-end video, but that it had all these possibilities of brilliant storytelling. So now that Magnet Media was on a roll, you had a different set of challenges to grow and to scale. And at one point, it was so challenging that it almost brought you down health-wise. What happened? Yeah. So it's funny. I just came across the um, itinerary from that trip. I was I was cleaning out a, a closet that I didn't realize had some old files. But uh, this was um, less than ten years ago, actually. Um, that I uh, was in. We were in a very high growth period. We were hiring a number of people, and I still were, was wearing a number of hats myself. And um, we had just signed with a Hollywood agent, which is really exciting. And they had lined up. Um, you know, 30 meetings for me in three days. And, you know, it was this, I was really pushing them to like, you know, max out the calendar because I was only going to be in LA for, you know, 72 hours. I wanted to meet everybody. Um, we had all these brilliant ideas. And uh, as I was on the flight, I remember feeling like, you know, I was going through all the prep, um, preparation materials. Uh, and I remember feeling like I was getting really hot. And all of a sudden, I was like looking down at my laptop and I'm like, wow, it's like really hot in here. Um, and I went to the restroom and I felt like I was going to pass out. Um, and when we landed, you know, I just was like, okay, I like splashed water on my face. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go to these meetings. Like that was just like a weird moment. Um, and the first meeting, I honestly cannot tell you anything that was said during that meeting. So I was just like sitting there staring off into space and in such agonizing pain. Um, and by the end of the, the meeting, I just had to like excuse myself and went to the hotel room and just called 911 because I was like, just like doubled over in pain. Um, and it turned out that I had like a number of different, you know, minor, what turned out to be fortunately very minor uh, health issues, but it was really scary. And I was in the hospital for a week and, you know, visited by the head of surgery and um, they were, you know, my agent sent me flowers and like, you know, it was like this whole thing of like, oh my God, am I, you know, 
not going to make it to 40 here. <laughs> it's a crazy amount to sacrifice. And at the time I was really, uh, you know, in that same startup mode that any founder is still, um, where it's like, you know, you'll do anything, it's whatever it takes, right? You'll do anything to, to make it a success. It's really the only thing that matters. Um, and, you know, it ta- I believe it takes a lot of that drive and uh, commitment to um, make something successful, to make a company from nothing. Um, but I learned the hard lesson in that example that, you know, there are moments where um, you really have to take a step back and say, okay, if this is the only way to be successful, then, you know, it's, I can't like sacrifice my life for <laughs> the success of the company. Something has to change. Um, and so as it turned out, my husband was in um, Northern California for a board meeting for his company um, that same week. And he flew down and was like, you know, very concerned. Obviously I was sitting there with my IVs and, uh, you know, sleeping most of the day. And we just sat there and he, it was like an intervention. He was just like, you know, you can't keep working these hours. And um, we had a, our, our son had just been born. And so he was, you know, really young at the time. And, you know, he was calling me on FaceTime and being like, mommy, why aren't you coming home? And it was just, you know, it was all these like sort of reality checks in the fact that uh, that pace that I was trying to keep of like, you know, sleep, sleeping on four or five hours of um a night and, you know, doing a gazillion different jobs, it wasn't realistic. Um, and so in that, uh, phase, I really rewrote the business plan and said, if we restructured the company so that there's a lot more autonomy, um, that my very talented team, uh, could take on, um, what would this look like? And, uh, in that sort of organizational redesign, um, was the next chapter of Magnet Media, which we still um, has brought us to this day. That's amazing. I, when you were talking about uh, your husband talking to you and your your son being worried about you, I was thinking of. I was just reading this morning about the the uproar over the uh, Silicon Valley CEO who had put out this incredible request for a nanny who who was like a miracle worker, you know, and there's all this debate of what do, what do women want, you know, working women want. And the, you know, and, and, and I, I read this great column in the Washington post that talked about the, the emotional cost of labor, right? It's like all of this hidden stuff that women do that we don't get paid for. And, mm-hmm. and you were not only an executive, but you also were a mom and a wife and a homemaker at the time. So it's not surprising. <laughs> yeah, it was. A, they, I mean, I do believe that women have a number of responsibilities. I believe that any founder with a family has a number of responsibilities that are very difficult to juggle. Um, but I should also note just for the record that I have had um, since Jack was born an absolutely incredible nanny and support of my parents and um, my husband's parents. And, you know, we both have incredible brothers. So, you know, we have a really amazing support network. And even with all that support, I think it's still incredibly challenging. Definitely. So, so where is the whole media industry headed now, would you say, in terms of content marketing and video and storytelling? What's, there's, every day there's change. Every day there's disruption. Where are we going? This is one of my favorite all-time questions. So thank you for asking, Chitra. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, you know, reflecting back, we're going to be 20 years old next year. And I will say that, you know, the last two decades has probably been the most disruptive that the media industry has ever seen. 
Um, and in those disruptions, um, you know, advertising has become increasingly blocked, skipped, and avoided, while stories are searched for, discovered, enjoyed, and shared socially. And so it's this interesting dichotomy where throughout companies' uh, history, you know, legacy and incumbent companies, you know, these large enterprises, they're still often scratching their head on digital transformation. Um, their teams don't think in, you know, sort of social and mobile first ways. Um, you know, their communications are, you know, fairly dated traditionally where, you know, it's more about like press releases and billboards and, um, you know, media mentions and things than it is around um, really owning the story and producing original content. Um, but what we're seeing is that more and more the brands that are fastest moving and taking full advantage of all of these distribution channels are true storytellers. They are really the ones that understand that putting forth filmmaking and blogs and podcasting and streaming series um, and working with influencers and designing immersive experiences, that all of those touch points that you could potentially have with your community of customers um, is the gold that makes a brilliant brand and frankly, a sustainable company. I think it becomes even more necessary today when you look at, we're all at the mercy of algorithms. And if you look at how Facebook has changed its algorithm, for instance, to favor person-to-person -person communication and storytelling, as opposed to corporate advertising and marketing, it becomes all the more important, I think, for companies to figure out how do we, how do we work uh, around these changes? You know, how do we play with these algorithms and be able to still get our message out? Absolutely. And I think that that aspect of how to get the message out is so critical because it really comes down to both the art and science of modern marketing. Um, you know, the art is really around thinking through consumer insights and what's really having the pulse of the culture. Um, and the science is understanding how do you now take those story ingredients and form a story along the lines that will be shared socially or discovered through search. Um, so if you understand both the search dynamics and the social climate and how to uh, kind of tap into those, um, you know, key distribution channels, I think, you know, that's a winning combination. And I think one of the interesting things you told me earlier was that brands have to be patrons of culture in a, in a weird way. They need to be able to tap into what's affecting people at an emotional level and culture is one of it. Absolutely. I think, you know, I just got back from Davos, as you know, we were talking about this earlier. And um, one of the things that was so frankly inspiring to me was that while, you know, the prior years um, average age was, you know, something in the late sixties or early seventies even, um, and was largely white and male, um, you know, this year there definitely was a movement towards increasing diversity and they have a long way to go. So I don't want to claim any victory, but I will definitely say that uh, it felt very earnest to me in terms of leaders who um, were, you know, really shedding a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of closed door meetings and, you know, sort of private 
uh, brokering um, of power and instead were making themselves much more available and having transparent conversations, um, in some cases very difficult conversations that I'm sure they didn't want to be having in public um, around, you know, the state of their company or, you know, their own um, career decisions. Um, but they were open to being challenged um, and it was really refreshing to see that kind of uh, opening up of, um, of access to power. Looking back, what are your closing thoughts on who you were and, and what you have become and, and the work that you're doing today? It's interesting. I mean, I still feel like I have a lot of things to do. <laughs> so, um, hopefully this isn't a, uh, an achievement uh, award type of a <laughs> retirement speech here. <laughs> um, you know, I think, you know, my greatest, I, I, I feel like um, on a personal level, I will say that, uh, you know, the support system of my family and friends is, and my team has been my greatest fortune. Every moment um, that was, you know, just heartbreaking or, you know, a, a devastating setback. And, you know, frankly, in the early days, we had them, you know, once an hour. Um, <laughs> I felt like it was a victory when this only happened once a month after many years. <laughs> um, but you'll always have, you know, sort of these disappointments when you're, when you're doing something really ambitious. Um, and so having that, that system of support um, with my friends and my family and my team has always been, uh, you know, so gratifying and so fortunate. Um, and my mentors, you know, having Alex Yuhas um, teach that women in documentary class, having Larry Silk um, really be, uh, you know, such a, um, a wise uh, mentor um, in the editing, from the editing room and seeing um, what I could not see in, in the possibilities of um, my future on the technology side. Um, but I think that, you know, ultimately this movement towards storytelling, um, it's just getting started. I mean, we, you know, for years have largely been a video first company. Um, and over the last six months, we've launched four original podcasts. Um, and so, you know, we're always students of the business. And I think trying to bring a beginner's mind to every new year um, to, you know, what's uh, hot and different and going to allow our clients to stand out and um, really catch a wave of um, new interest. Um, I'm really fascinated by TikTok right now. I think it's, it's taking over um, <laughs> the mobile attention of Generation Z and, and increasingly millennials and even Gen X. So um, there's all these new platforms and new mediums. And to me, um, just you know, getting to explore and enjoy the possibilities of those storytelling formats is, is really a privilege. Megan, thank you so much for joining me and for the fascinating conversation. I appreciate being a guest on your terrific show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Megan Cunningham is CEO of the brand studio Magnet Media. Cunningham is a sought-after speaker on media and marketing trends, especially how data informs the storytelling process to drive measurable impact. She's the author of the book, The Art of the Documentary, and she has spoken at many events, including the Sundance Film Festival the Wharton School of Business, South by Southwest, and the Consumer Electronics Show. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. 
When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.